Today's content warning. Honestly, if you made it through the last episode, which was hard, and I'm so sorry. I didn't see it coming either, but we're going to take care of you today and get some lulls. We do talk to a real hunter who describes some graphic hunts, and I think I say the S word two times. The first time I went to a tiki bar, no one had explained to me what tiki meant. I walk in to meet my friends. It's a restaurant called Trader Vic's, and the decor was a hodgepodge of cultures Europeans had colonized. There's beautiful East Asian screens dividing the dining room. The chairs are those rattan wicker chairs you've seen in old photos from plantations in India and the Caribbean. There are wooden masks on the wall from Africa, but there's a Polynesian boat hanging from the ceiling. The menu is out of pocket. There is a dish called Chef Chin Chin Fried Rice. I'm an Asian American comedian, and I would be canceled if I named a character Chef Chin Chin. Then our drinks come out in novelty cups, which look holy to somebody. They were like Easter Islandish figures, if you know what they look like. I don't know where they're supposed to be from exactly. I've just been to enough museums full of looted holy art to clock it when I see it. Finally, I asked my friends, uh, guys, is the theme here colonialism? <laughs> joking, not joking. Then the servers bring our food. And these servers were literally all immigrants from formerly colonized countries. We looked like the cast of a UN humanitarian aid commercial. And then I tasted the food. Yo, that racist food was awesome. The tropical drinks were on point. The staff was lit. And I thought, oh shit, I get now why colonizers plunder. Because when you throw us all together, our people, our spices, our tropical fruits, admittedly, it is a damn good time. It was such a good time. I asked to let the manager know. And I swear to you, on my mama, the general manager was a Frenchman. Like, ooh la la, madame, merci beaucoup pour le compliment. For those of you just tuning in, the French were my colonizers. My family is from Vietnam. We kicked out the French at the Battle of Dinh Binh Phu in 1954, and we were like, GTFO, leave your baguettes. This tiki bar kept the theme of colonialism down to their org chart. That is how committed they were to this bit. And as a stand-up comedian, I admire it so much. It inspires me to this day. I'm Ivy Lee with one E, and you're listening to FOGO, Fear of Going Outside, where I am committed to doing everything it takes to figure out how to go hunting or die trying. So far, I was unsuccessful getting a gun, but some hunters put me on the bow and arrow, which I didn't even realize was still a hunting implement. I own one now and started practicing. I have attempted to pass several online hunter's ed courses, but I keep failing the musket chapter. Don't worry, you don't actually have to pass hunter's ed to get a hunting license. It's just recommended. They need the license fees to support conservation efforts, so they'll take that money regardless. And it does take a lot of effort to conserve nature because, an indigenous hunter explained to me, we did a genocide on the indigenous people who had been managing this land for 20,000 years. And we invented hunting licenses largely to limit black freedmen hunters after the Civil War. Anyway, I'm hunting hogs, which don't require a license when hunting on private land. 
but I haven't been able to get any private landowners to let us come hunt. And the state of Texas in particular has hardly any public lands to hunt on. I'd been keeping a good attitude about the obstacles until last episode when I found out immigrants who look a lot like my dad get shot at up north nearly every hunting season. People have suggested I find a mentor to take me hunting. So on today's episode, I talk to a very special guest who makes his living as a hunting guide. I hope he can give me my optimism back and maybe I can convince him to mentor my hunt. We've been getting ghosted by, I think, upwards of a dozen different landowners and hunting outfits by now. It's what I like to call the South Texas no. No one is rude about it. They just stop answering your messages. We'll probably never know why, but Fogo's producer Mariah Gossett stopped putting pronouns in her email signature to see if it would help. I have heard from nearly everyone that they had a mentor who taught them how to hunt, or if they didn't, than they really, really, really wish they had. And it does seem like I need someone on the inside of this world to get me access. I decided to take my own advice from season one's finale. I joined the Facebook group for my local chapter of Outdoor Asians. No one responds to my posts looking for hunters, so I go to a pho meetup that they're having to network with these outdoors people. I didn't bring any recording equipment because I wanted to gain their trust, but it went something like this. Yeah, I thought I could carry 40 pounds, but on day three, it was so done. Yeah, totally. Like, I used to be able to help my friends move, but I'm getting way too old to carry that kind of weight up and down condo stairs. So, as the group is growing, I will take on all the planning help I can get for the fall trip. Well, I have planned more than 36 bachelorette parties, so I can for sure help get party bus and limo quotes. Big Bend National Park is so underrated. Why didn't anybody tell me this before I moved to Texas? Oh my gosh. I know of a real person who went there. Uh, They couldn't stop talking about how bendy it was. Let's just say I didn't get any new followers for At Fogo Podcast after that. But the guy who started the chapter, Troy Wong, says he'll introduce me to a Vietnamese-American hunting guide who has been on Naked and Afraid. Naked and Afraid, where they drop a random outdoors woman and random outdoorsman somewhere to try to survive for 21 whole days without clothes or water? I watch this show like sports people watch their ball shows. I daydream about competing. I yell at the TV as if I could do better. Sometimes I cry. When my boy Troy from Outdoor Asian says he's going to introduce me to Don Wing from season six, episode 14, titled 23 Days, set in the unforgiving savannah of Namibia, I ran to watch it. And you better believe I asked him about his experience being on the show. Like during the, during the middle of our shoot, at one point, a farm truck, a beat up old Toyota rolled by and the guy hit the brakes because he saw like a white naked lady and then me. Like standing there in the middle of a field chopping at things and like all the crew are trying to cover Amber and I'm standing here naked like, no one's covering me. No one. And they're like, you know, nuts hanging out naked in front of this guy driving by. Naked and Afraid introduces its contestants with a PSR score for Primitive Survival Rating. 
It's a number one to 10 that represents how expert a survivalist someone is. On Don's episode, he was rated lower than his partner who ended up going home so early, the producers let him restart the challenge with a new partner who was also rated higher than him. She went home early too. So Don, a skinny son of Vietnamese refugees, a nerd from Oklahoma City who the show says lacks field experience because who has relevant Namibian field experience? He completes the challenge all alone with what he studied from books about Namibia and a positive attitude. Dear reader, I know you all believe in me, but if you can imagine, I get underestimated in life a lot, especially outdoors. I think it's because I'm short, I'm Southern, and I ask a lot of questions. I relate to Dawn like a brother from another mother. I mean, I ended up a cosmopolitan writer, actress, and comedian performing nearly exclusively indoors, while he ended up founding Climbers of Color and working as a professional hunting and mountaineering guide. But besides that, we're basically twins. I would die if I could talk him into coming down to Texas to mentor my first hunt. Tell me about how you learned to hunt. So I didn't really have a mentor to start hunting. So I like, you know, in, in middle school and high school, I see all the kids go out and like, oh yeah, it's hunting season. You know, we're going to go out this uh, Saturday, this weekend and go hunting on our, on our lease. And I kept bugging people and it was really hard to get invited. So the first hunting trip I went on, it was my brother-in-law. My, he convinced an acquaintance, let us go hunt on his son's land. And so we go out there and I got dropped off in a, in a box blind, which is just a box with like three windows on it. And I was like, okay, well, I'll just sit here. And he's like, oh yeah, just like, if you see something, just, um, you know, just shoot it. And if you see a turkey, you know, here's a, tur- here's a turkey gun, just shoot, you know, just point it and squeeze. I'm like, what? I never touched these guns before. These are not my guns. I have no idea what they're about. As the morning progresses, I'm super bored. So I have my microbiology homework in the box blind with me. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an Asian student. I'm like studying, always getting ready for the next test. And I'm studying, you know, my college assignments. And while I'm flipping through the pages and going to the, going to the flashcards, I hear a bunch of like, rustling outside. I look out, peep out the window like, oh, that's a, that's a deer. And it comes out there and stands and starts eating at the feeder. So I slowly open the window and I like get this like four foot long gun. I, it's a musket actually. It's a black powder gun. So I, like, bang, I'm like banging the musket barrel into like the box blind and the wall and the like, windowsill. And then like, it just stood there and watched me. I'm like, that's, I mean, I kind of feel bad. Like this thing is just looking at me. Like it isn't even afraid. So like, okay, let's just, I'm here to do it. Go, Bam. And I shoot the deer pretty loud because it was a musket, but it like wasn't that loud. I go, oh man, my ears are ringing. Cool, the deer is dead. And so I w- went, went over there and the deer was like not dead. It was like I winged it and it was getting back up. I'm like, oh my God, the deer is right next to me. So the deer's in the ground and the, the musket they gave me with no reloads is empty. But I have this ha- a handgun. I brought a handgun, my own handgun with me because, you know, like, man, I'm in the woods in Oklahoma. I'm not, I don't trust these white people. I just met these guys. And so I got this handgun. I'm like, well, I, gotta, I'm, I think I'm going to put this thing down. So I put the gun next to the, the deer's head and pull the trigger. And it is not like the movies. That was like one of the most gruesome things I'll never forget ever. Like it was super, the, the gun went off. They shot the deer in the head. It was super gory. And like, that was my first deer I ever killed. I was like, dang it. This did not go well at all. It was like super traumatizing, super violent. And, you know, hunting is inherently, it is, I mean, it's a violent sport. I mean, I'm a hunting guy. I know that. You're like, you, we're out there to kill things. But, like, that wasn't exactly how I was hoping my first hunt would ever go down. How did you um, react, like, that first time 
so I shot the deer with the handgun and then all the bl- blood and gore and you know twitching and immediately I started bawling. I was like, oh my God, this is the worst thing. What have I done? I was like, tears running down my cheeks. And I was just sitting there like crying and his ears twitching and bleeding all over the place. And like, it was, a, it was a smoking handgun in my hand at my side. I'm like, oh God, why did I come out here? What happened? The fact is these guys, you know, they had no responsibility to train me. You know, it was supposed to be a mentor kind of thing. And so our friend kind of brought us out there and like forced his son to, you know, let us hunt in his land and let him borrow his guns. But like, I didn't have a mentor, a mentor to be like, Hey, you remember like right here at the elbow, right there in the center of their bottom center of their chest, you got to keep, keep the sights focused there. Don't try to wander it around. And that's why like now as a hunting guide, I like really try to drill that lesson home. Like, Hey, like if you want to kill this animal quickly and cleanly and not get so, you know, go act full action movie on this thing, you know, you're going to have to shoot it correctly. And I give coaching advice on that. So then what kept you like, I mean, you're still hunting. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to go back and get it done right. You know, to do, to do past, past me right and help people that were in that situation. I was, whether it's climbing or hunting, get into these sports the right way and feel good about it. I'm hearing that Don had a horrific first hunt, which, you know, not what I'm trying to hear right now, but he learned from it and it makes him a better guide. It makes him the guide he wished he had, but couldn't find. Kind of like how I'm having a hard time finding a mentor. I didn't know what to call it back when I started my, my journey of hunting, but I knew that my journey of hunting needed to look at other perspectives because like it was hard enough to find like some good old boy Oklahoman to take me to his hunting camp, right? So I'm like, well, if it's, if it's this difficult to get someone here to hunt with me, like I'm going to go to the hardest to reach places in the world and find hunters there to learn from. Because it can't be any harder than getting a good old boy in Oklahoma to show you his favorite deer spots, right? That is, I mean, in, in Oklahoma, I mean, in, in the local places that we live at that, that are the white dominated hunting spaces, it's, it's kind of like an unsaid ownership of these public lands that people like to use. There's like not a lot of sharing, a lot of gatekeeping. No hunter worth any of their salt in, in the States is going to geotag exactly where they went hunting because it's compromising possibly generations of secret knowledge of that family and that hunting group to the public. You'll never do that. So that's why you talk to hunters in the States, even public land hunters, you're not going to gain the information that you're looking for. What you're looking for, what all hunters are looking for is where are the game animals and when do they come out? Everything else that's said is really just social noise. Mm-hmm. That's the information. Like, hey, how are you doing out there? Like, you know, some guy in a truck pulls up. He, like, he's trying to start a conversation. They, oh, we're getting into them. And they, oh, yeah, where? I'm like, you know, in the timber. Mm-hmm, yeah. And they're like, okay, <laughs> we, we see him in the timber too. And so basically, like, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being a polite of being like, hey, I'm not going to give you what you're looking for. Like, why would I? You, you never have given it to me. And why not? I mean, like, you have to know that, like, trophy animals only come around every, like, half a generation. Like, the really big trophies. The ones that you see, like, hung up in hunting lodges. The ones you see pictures of in the magazines. Are trophy animals different from, like, other animals that you hunt? Like, I thought a trophy. I thought when you said trophy, I thought you meant, like, just, like, literally any animal that you killed. So a trophy animal I'm referring to is like what the old hunting establishment, like the Boone and Crockett Club, the Pope and Young Club. These are like big old hunting clubs that came around after like the Theodore Roosevelt era conservation started. They use trophy hunting in reference to like the large, old, experienced bucks and bulls with the huge horns that exist out there. The reason that they, their, their horns and racks got so big is that they're very wily and smart and know how to evade humans. 
and to、mm. take a trophy, a larger animal that matches this, the criteria of a, of a trophy, shows that you're a better hunter, or tracker, or shooter than everybody else, or at least you have access to good land and you know the location. You've scouted better locations than other folks. Man, I feel like I finally know why I've been getting nowhere with leads on places to hunt. I have been running into an invisible wall of culture. I felt it, but Don's had enough experience to be able to identify it. I am so relieved to hear someone say it out loud. <laughs> sure, it, it sucks a little to know that all those people I reached out to didn't forget about me. They, or maybe their neighbors, actually rejected me. But at least now I know why. Don found it easier to travel the world and be welcomed by hunters abroad who don't even share his language. Than to find a mentor here in the states, how could I, someone who hates the outdoors, hope to do better? But he did it. Don is a hunter, not in the sense that he's part of the hunter culture here, obviously, but in the deeply human sense that he is a hunter in the tradition of humans throughout time and every place on Earth. You know, traveling across the world and talking to different hunters, like. There's definitely some hunting cultures have that trophy mindset, you know. Like talking to the、uh, Arani Indians in the Ecuadorian Amazon, some of their really good hunters they have that same kind of macho braggart culture, and then talking like, oh yeah, like these three pigs, I just got these three peccaries here, you know. Like I got them all with a spear, you know. And like I didn't use a shotgun, you know. He like he implies he did hand to hand combat to kill these giant, you know, jungle pigs. <laughs> And、uh, Nahal's friends are like, no, no, he's full of it. He's lying. He used a shotgun. They're like, and it's like this. It has a similar feel to North America, even like being that far away in indigenous culture. Sometimes some cultures have that kind of bravado. It comes with hunting. So that's only some cultures. Yeah,、that's、some some of them are definitely not big on trophies. Some are very focused on practicality and survival. But some of them are more like North America and like love to talk big and you know BS. When everyone told me to get close-toed shoes in season one, I knew it was white people trying to justify the ugly-ass things they paid too much for. I knew it because I have global perspective. Where I'm from in Texas, a chancla is a tactical weapon, and where my parents are from in Vietnam, we famously expelled multiple armies in tire sandals from the jungle, where there are jungle ants. Okay. And when I went camping last season, I knew what food to bring because I had studied the food ways and histories of many cultures, searching for clues and ideas, frankly, on how people endured their real-life zombie apocalypses and how they rebuilt. As I knew, I would have to do as my family's first American. Don shares that same drive, and it sent him searching for hunting teachers the world over. In fact, part of why he wasn't rated as strong a survivalist as he proves himself to be in the show was because he mostly pursues training with indigenous hunters. He feels their fieldcraft is superior in many ways to what's taught at more prestigious outdoor schools here in the states. After his time on Naked and Afraid, he didn't go home. He took advantage of the free flight, like a good child of immigrants, and he arranged to stay another three weeks to learn from the Tuwasi hunters, who are indigenous to the Kalahari Desert. Which, if you don't Google the contestants after watching the show like I do, I'll tell you, that's odd. Usually, they go straight home to recover and tend to their injuries. But I think B 
being outside, hunting and eating with people all over the world is Dawn's idea of rest. What are some cultures that aren't like this that I probably wouldn't have access to? Would be the uh, Kalahari Bushmen in Southern Africa. It's hard to say whether this culture, their culture is different because it arises from the political circumstances or the environmental circumstances they're in, you know, going from a, a jungle to a, to a desert. But um, they view hunting in a very practical way. They don't like to brag. You know, I, I had to pry after like spending weeks with these hunters. I had, to, I had to drag it and like pry it out of them. Like how many of these kudu bulls have you gotten? And they go, they kind of dodge the question. And it took ages. And finally, like, oh yeah, I killed like 35 of those, I think. Whereas another culture might be like, oh yeah, I killed hundreds, maybe thousands of these animals, you know. But they're, they definitely really didn't want to give the information. They really refused to brag about it. It was just ingrained into their society. Like if you start doing really good, you need to take a step back and let, let the next generation come up and get a little bit of glory too before you resume your hunting. It sounds to me that he admires this culture of stepping back for the next generation more than the trophy culture. It's the opposite of gatekeeping. It's more like pushing people through the gate. I want him to push me. Push me through that gate, please. I don't even know where the gate is right now. I try to convince him to come down to Texas. I can't afford his normal guide fee, which is expensive. I'm sure people who can pay it say it's worth every penny. You know, maybe for my future Fogo TV show, but I'm on a podcast budget for now. Instead, I entice Don with the promise of a food tour fit for a king. He knows I'm good for it because I'm Asian. Plus, I tell him we have a hot air balloonist willing to take us if I can find land. Just as I suspected, he has never hunted from a hot air balloon. And he says yes. Yeah, I really want to get down there. I want to be I want to be next to you when you drop your first hog and you like get all in the guts and bloody with you. But I've but the rest of my spring and summer is just so booked up. It's just completely booked up. Yes, but is a no. God damn it. He would have come if one of our land leads came through for a date this month or next. But of course, none did. And Don's busy season started up. Ah, I was so close. I couldn't stand it. Is this just like, is this like, I don't know, mountain season? I mean, mountains are going to be there all year, Don. I know. <laughs> Yeah, people, people, the mountains are here all year, but people only pay money to climb them in the summer is the problem. Oh, yeah. Bit of a bummer. (laughs) But hey, you know, for season three, if you want to go on a big game hunt, you should come out to Wyoming sometime in uh, in the camp I work at. He can't be my hunting mentor. So my search continues. But I have a standing invite to Wyoming. And he says, I can message him anytime with questions. He'll answer them whenever he has connectivity between guiding trips. I am really bummed. So he tries to leave me with some encouragement for my hunting quest and how it will all be worth it in the end. When I'm on horseback or I'm like walk, quietly walking in the pre-dawn light in a f- hunting field, you know, I'm out there in, in the in the Absaroka or the Wind River Range and there's a few inches of fresh snow on the ground Ugh. and out in the valley below I hear an elk bugle or I hear a, the grunting of a, a deer nearby you know like I don't see a single human in sight it's just me and my hunter and this whole valley this whole range out before us it's like it's almost like we're the only people on earth everything's right in the world I have good boots on my feet 
I have a good rifle in my hand. My backpack has lunch in it. I have a thermos of coffee. And this is the last great adventure in the world before me. Bruh, you lost me at pre-dawn and inch of snow. <laughs> oh. Try again. Try again. Okay, I didn't sell you on that. I didn't sell you on that. You're hard sell. You're really hard sell. Dawn try is a different angle. You know, I look good when I go hunting. I, I get to dress up. I get to dress like a cowboy, you know. I got good Mackinac coat, you know, cool vintage looking gun. I feel really good about myself. So maybe that's a good sell for you. Yeah. I can, okay. I think I, I think I can do, I think I can pull together some really great fits, some looks because um, I'm glad that you said that because everybody who's trying to tell me about the clothes that they were hunting, I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Those are not clothes that I'm going to spend my hard earned money on and like let them live in my closet. <laughs> Yeah, look at my pictures. I got some pictures where I like I was really bored at camp. You know, I'm sitting there. I got I got to watch horses for a few days between the hunts. You know, someone has to take care of the horses, and I have like little fashion shoots of the horses and stuff. I look really hot. Like hunting clothes, they they fit really good on me. You know, you okay, know. I'm so it up right go now. To my, go to my Instagram, scroll down. I, I got this mohawk going on. I got this Mackinac coat, and I got my ta horse taco. I look so okay. good. Real Don Wing. Go for it. Oh, yeah. I see the knapsack. You really do just have like an old school knapsack. It's not a purse. It's a knapsack, okay? <laughs> it holds bullets and stuff and bandages. Don's Instagram, at Real Don Wing, does not offend my eyes. Most hunters do. I do appreciate, say, digital camo in a good streetwear outfit, but hunter's camo is not it. And it turns out, most people hunt from inside boxes they call blinds, so the animals can't see them anyway. Who is this performance of wooded camouflage for? The other hunter in the blind with you is human. It's common decency then to wear something pleasing to the human eye. Don doesn't dress like that. His hunting style is inspired by adventure, and he is legitimately a brand ambassador for the wool coat company Weatherwool. But I need a clearer concept to get a mood board going. Adventure is a cool idea, but my adventures and his adventures are not the same. Suddenly, I remembered that tiki bar, and I know exactly what I need to do. I'm just going to have like a, a total colonizer-themed themed outfit. <laughs> but combine it from like European, American, just like combine All the, of them. everything. Just like, <laughs> and just see, just see if anybody notices. Show up the camp and like show up the camp with like knee high heeled leather boots, like riding boots, and like, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, like cowboy, a tartan. the cowboy hat and the English riding boots, and like American flags. <laughs> yeah, then throw a plaid shirt in there, just just like why not? It's a, it's a lumberjack shirt. Do we know what hat Christopher Columbus wore? Like, what was it? <laughs> oh my god, I'm gonna look so awesome, but yeah. I mean, it's gonna be so hot. Yeah, so hot. I mean, like sweaty hot. Yeah, <laughs> I that mean, too. Like... Sweaty, hot, covered in ticks, but also like actually hot. Yeah, we got to bring the hot girl vibe back into hunting. I'm not sure when it lost it or even had it to begin with, but the hot girl vibe needs to be brought back into hunting, you know? Yeah. like Hunting fashion, it's a fine art. We got to bring this back. Hunting fashion. It's the art of standing out, but also blending in. Dear reader, I'm taking you into the heart of darkness that is my closet. I am going to pull from classic colonial looks, Danish aristocrats on safari, British hunting tweed and riding boots, French fur traders from the hunting movie Prey, and of course, American military surplus, which has long been my go-to for affordable tech wear. 
I can't reuse the fishing shirts I altered in season one because I had specifically picked bright colors in case I needed to be rescued from camping. My first draft outfits feature khaki and olive safari clothes and green army camo. But the problem is that I look like a Viet Cong soldier because of my face. And I probably will be sharing shooting lanes with veterans who don't believe in PTSD or therapy. But I remember something I learned in an episode of David Attenborough's docuseries Life in Color. Bengal tigers evolved to be orange and black to blend in with the grasslands where they live in Indian Sri Lanka. To us, orange is not so grassy because we have three color cones in our eyes. But the axis deer that these tigers hunt only have two types of color cones, which means orange just looks like muted green to them. That's why people wear orange in deer season, so humans don't shoot them, but deer don't avoid them. So I'm like, hold up just a goddamn minute. How many color cones do pigs have? Two, like deer? Three, like us? 16, like the mantis shrimp? Pigs have two! That means I can wear anything between red and green on the color spectrum. Anything with blue value, like cool gray or purple, is off limits, but that's like not even half our color spectrum, honey. I can make that work. One of the ways my flaming bisexuality manifests is in my deliberate, some would say visionary, sartorial choices. I almost hate to admit it, but Dawn's fashion angle works on me. For the first time this whole quest, I'm visualizing myself outside, and not in a worst-case scenario planning kind of way. I'm not excited to kill, but now... I'm excited to slay if Dawn could survive 23 days outdoors naked. I think I can do one hunt styled. And just as importantly, I now know there's a cultural difference between old school sport and trophy hunters and new school hunters like Don. They weren't taught to hunt as a matter of legacy, and they're eager for more new hunters to join them. I get it. I've been the first or second minority at every place I've ever worked, and it's lonely out there. Don is so invested in getting me outside, he would send me links to elegant hats he came across out guiding his moneyed clients for the rest of his busy season. I'm super disappointed Don can't be my mentor in person, but ultimately, I feel empowered to be me again. I'm not just a sad sack of trauma, y'all. I'm a fun person. I have an indoor person's nature show on Spotify. Every other hunter I talked to gave me talking points. Don gave me an invitation, like a really insistent invitation from a relative who has no problem making me feel obligated to come to something I really don't want to. I know more new school hunters like him exist, and I just have to find them somehow. I mean, I don't think they literally call themselves new school hunters. That's just what I'm calling them. Hold on. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna Google new school hunting. Holy shit, the first result is a hunting school called New School of Traditional Cookery. Each course is led by Chef Jesse Griffith, who acts as a hunting guide as well as a hunting instructor and the butchering and cooking components. About, 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 where are you? About. The New School of Traditional Cookery was founded in 2000 in Austin, Texas. Hallelujah. I tell you what, I'll be goddamned if I'm not butchering a hog with this guy next time on Fogo. And so I start at the back, um, the very farthest point, 
without the being butthole. too the butthole. The butthole. Yeah, you have okay. to core the butthole. Like an apple. Fogo, Fear of Going Outside is a Spotify SoundUp series and was workshopped as part of the Spotify SoundUp Podcast Accelerator program. Fogo is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ivy Lee, with one E. We are produced and edited by Mariah Gossett, engineering, mixing, and additional sound design by Robin Edgar. Our theme song and original music are composed by Michelangelo Rodriguez, story editing by Minda Wei, production support by Benjamin Groses Eastrup. Fogo's board of advisors is Jeff Zhao and Martin Thomas. Our outdoor Asians voice actors were Dana Wing Lau, Iwu, and Minda Wei doing double duty today. From Spotify, our executive producers are Miguel Contreras, Grace Delia, Jane Zumwalt, and Natalie Tullock. Spotify production support provided by Shirley Ramos. And special thanks to the rest of the Spotify team. Listen to Fogo, Fear of Going Outside for free on Spotify. You can follow me on just about every social media platform at Ivy Lee with one E, that phrase all spelled out, and follow our guest, Don Wing, at Real Don Wing. Don is spelled D-O-N. Wing is N-G-U-Y-E-N. Go to fogopodcast.com for the newsletter, transcripts, and merch. I was like dripping blood as a 10-year-old, and I was like crying and sobbing the whole way down as he lowered me down. And then he rappelled down and goes, I'm so sorry. I'll never take you climbing again. And then now I'm a mountaineering guide. (laughs) 